Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg, in partnership with justiceinfo.net. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. So continuing our uh, Ecofile series, today we're looking at how the issue of climate change is being dealt with at the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, ITLOS. Yeah, there was a submission in December 2022 from a number of small island states on state responsibility to address climate change. We've already talked a bit about how the International Court of Justice here in our backyard has also been asked to rule on this. But in fact, the first time an international judicial body has been called upon to consider the responsibilities of countries when it comes to protecting the world's waters from climate change is at ITLOS. Yeah, I think we need a bit of an acronym alert here because we're going to have a lot of them today. Yes, the request at ITLOS came from COSIS, and that is a small group of nine island nations. It stands for the Commission of Small Island States on Climate Change and International Law. They want the tribunal to issue an advisory opinion on climate change. And in September, there was a hearing. That's what we are discussing today. And we know the international tribunals listen to each other. And we heard in our Chagos podcast with Philippe Sands that lawyers strategize to where to get which ruling in order to get the next ruling they need. So one of the reasons we are looking at ITLAS is because it may show us some of the arguments that will come before the International Court of Justice quite soon. And may may actually influence what the International Court of Justice gets to, to say. But let's start with ITLOS itself. Why is it involved? Um, for anybody who hasn't been listening assiduously to us, we did a podcast uh, about ITLOS with our friend and shipmate, Molly Quell and Law of the Sea Master and Commander. Okay, I think that's enough of those sea-related puns. Douglas Guilfoyle. Never. Um, <laughs> never. Okay, well, you can pirate away as you wish. And we'll put uh, a link uh, into that. But just a quick reminder, it's an independent judicial body set up to regulate and resolve disputes between states uh, regarding ocean space, things like maritime zones, navigation, conservation of sea life and protection of the marine environment, set up back in 1994 under the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea, UNCLOS, another acronym alert. That's the international agreement that sets out the legal framework and the rules, basically. And UNCLOS is globally recognised when it comes to matters of the law of the sea. Obviously, not every state has signed up to ITLOS, but it really is the big body to uphold the rules that the UN has set. They're kind of the sheriffs of the sea, except, of course, unlike a sheriff, they can't lock anybody up. States who've signed up are required to comply with their rulings, but they've got, as we often see with international law, no way of actually enforcing its decisions. Yes, that's like the standard sentence I add to every court ruling I have to rule on here in the Netherlands. But this brings us to the small island nations and their request for an advisory opinion from the Tribunal on Climate Change. COSIS, the Coalition of Small Island States, is made up of nine member states. They are Antigua and Barbuda, Tuvalu, Vanuatu, St. Kitts and St. Nevis, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, St. Lucia, Nioe and Palau. And there will be a quiz at the end of this to make sure that everybody remembers who is who. Ever since I heard, I think, a Dutch comic suggest that St. Vincent and the Grenadines is more of a band name than anything else, I, I keep thinking of, of that. 
Um, the Prime Minister of Antigua and Barbuda, Gaston Brown, is the co-chair of the committee, and he established COSIS with the Prime Minister of Tuvalu back in 2021 on the eve of the UN Climate Change Conference. Here is Prime Minister Brown addressing the tribunal in September, explaining COSIS and why they came about. The nine member states of COSIS are scattered across the globe but are united by a deep connection to and dependence on the marine environment and its resources. COSIS is an unprecedented intergovernmental organization. Its purpose is to harness the potential of international law to protect the most climate vulnerable states against existential threats. It is no exaggeration to speak of existential threats when some of these nations may vanish in the foreseeable future because of rising sea levels. The scientific evidence leaves no doubt that this situation has arisen because of the failure of major polluters to effectively mitigate greenhouse gas emissions. This inaction, this failure of political will, has brought humankind to a perilous juncture with catastrophic consequences. It is because of this reality that COSIS has brought this vital matter before you. In view of this reality, one can scarcely imagine a more compelling reason to establish an intergovernmental organization. What we're going to do is be playing quite a few clips from what was said in September, because we think that it's important to try and lay out some of the arguments, partly because we think these are the arguments that we're going to keep on hearing about and we think that it's important to kind of spread out exactly how the states approach this. So Prime Minister Brown gave a really stark account of how climate change has affected his country. He described the destruction that hurricanes have brought to people and the very severe effects of coastal erosion on precious ecosystems. In summary, the impacts of climate change on Antigua and Barbuda are nothing short of catastrophic. We are working desperately to adapt to these changes, but we cannot keep up with their frequency, the ferociousness and the extent of the harm that they create. To have any chance of survival, Antigua and Barbuda and other small island states need the world to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions while simultaneously helping them to cope with the effects of climate change. So what do they actually want the tribunal to do, Steph? Can you enlighten us? Well, yes, and this is thanks to all the research that our researchers, Susanna, did, because honestly, I didn't dive into the ITLOS, but uh, I want to give a shout out to all the help we get on this. They want the tribunal to issue an advisory opinion to all states about what states' parties are responsible for when it comes to climate change. And they have asked specifically a couple of questions. One is if greenhouse gases emissions qualify as marine pollution and lead to ocean warning, and if so, what then responsibilities do countries have to prevent it? And the second question is, what is the role of countries to protect the marine environment when it's affected by climate change? Doesn't that sound reminiscent, Steph, of the way that it's also framed for the International Court of Justice? Yes, absolutely. This sounds like a kind of rehash of the way that the ICJ question was framed, but just more specifically for the maritime environment. In his testimony for the tribunal, Prime Minister Brown also set out the importance of international law to clarify the responsibilities of the state's parties. 
We have come before this tribunal in the belief that international law must play a central role in addressing the catastrophe that we witness unfolding before our eyes. Your authoritative guidance on the specific obligations of states' parties to UNCLOS to protect the marine environment is a much-needed corrective to a process that has manifestly failed to arrest climate change. We cannot simply continue with endless negotiations and empty promises. The political process must be informed by existing binding obligations under international law. I emphasize existing obligations, Mr. President. We have not come before you to create new law. All that we ask is for the tribunal to clarify what UNCLOS requires of states' parties. And what Prime Minister Brown said there about these existing obligations, not creating new law, that's important. This um, set of small states are arguing that states' parties already have an obligation to prevent the adverse effects of climate change under the current Convention of the Law of the Sea. And they're asking the tribunal not to make any new law, but to clarify what existing law says. And that's what they say that they want out of the advisory opinion. Yeah, that also seems to be the inside of what the what they wanted the ICJ for climate change. But what makes the IDLOS advisory opinion significant is that it will be the first of three international courts to issue an opinion on climate change. And as we mentioned already, there is the ICJ, uh, and we did a podcast about it for these Ecofiles episodes when we spoke to young activists. But there is also the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, And it's also been asked to clarify states' positions with respect to climate change. But ITLOS is the first, and these kind of decisions tend to set precedence. And lead counsel for COSIS, Payam Akavan, set this out during the hearing. As the first to be seized of such a request, however, ITLOS will speak first. Your opinion will set the stage for what follows. Mr. President, these are the circumstances leading to the establishment of the Commission and to its request for an advisory opinion of unprecedented urgency and importance. Small island states are facing threats to their very existence. Also presenting her testimony to the court was environmental lawyer and indigenous Tuvaluan, Ms. Naima Te Male Fifita. She highlighted the role of small island nations, Viacosis, in actually getting this issue of climate change front and centre at the variety of international courts. It is a source of pride that the smallest of nations on earth have exercised such global leadership in bringing international law to life before international courts and tribunals. With a view to placing existing binding obligations at the center of deliberations on climate action. Mr. President, I emphasize existing obligations because it cannot be that international law as it exists today has nothing to say on the most pressing challenge of our times. It cannot be that island peoples must simply accept that their homelands will be uninhabitable because of the failure of others to take seriously their legal obligations. We have the right, and indeed the responsibility, to invoke fundamental legal principles, to demand that major polluters change course, 
to put an end to the harm that is now threatening our very existence. And as people of the ocean, who have navigated its vast expanse and lived off its bountiful resources since time immemorial, we see particular significance in the obligations of states parties to the 1982 UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. She then went on to highlight the inequity of climate change adverse effects on those most vulnerable. It is now apparent that, if unchecked, climate change will particularly devastate two groups, the poorest of the poor and those living in island states. These groups are set to suffer first and worst despite their negligible contributions to the climate crisis. Climate vulnerability or susceptibility to damage is fundamentally shaped not only by physical exposure to environmental harms, but by pre-existing power dynamics as well as social, political, and economic realities. Therein lies the moral crux intrinsic to the climate issue. Climate change presents not only an environmental crisis, but a crisis of inequity on multiple levels. The effects are, and will continue to be, unevenly suffered. And I'm really fascinated by these arguments that it's not only about the law, but also the responsibility of nations to do the right thing, because the world is actually full of these unequal power dynamics. And Ms. Fitita ended her testimony with an emotional appeal. I am here before you today, Mr. President, because of an exchange I had with my grandfather at 12 years of age. I had asked him how he felt about the idea that Tuvalu, his homeland, could soon disappear due to sea level rise. After a moment's reflection, he responded, it will never be gone. Only five years later, however, he relayed to me with great sadness that one of the islands in Tuvalu, where he spent many of his childhood years, had completely disappeared under the sea. Climate change is already wreaking havoc on our precious ancestral lands. Mr. President, to ensure that my grandfather's declaration holds true, to ensure that Tuvalu never disappears, I endeavor to do my part. In 10 years, From now, I hope to still be able to take my daughter to the island in Tuvalu, after which he named me, Temaile. By delivering a robust advisory opinion, this tribunal will not only make a historic contribution to the protection and preservation of the marine environment, but also to the continuity of entire civilizations and ancestral connections. This matter is truly a question of life and death. Therefore, I respectfully urge you, Mr. President, to consider the profound and timely impact this advisory opinion would have on those vulnerable communities who are deserving of clarity and justice. The thing that she said, that it reminds me also of what we saw at the ICJ, that they had people from Chagos explaining the impact of decisions on their lives. 
I also saw a story earlier this week that Australia has now said that they would take all of the people in Tuvalu in if their island nation would disappear under the sea. And it's just such a wild idea to me. Uh, that's a really a provision that people want because it's a really a genuine possibility that this country would disappear under the sea because of climate change. Yeah, it shows how absolutely real this threat is. I also saw that somewhere the idea that these states actually will exist still as states, even if they don't physically exist as states, and therefore all of their rights as members of the United Nations, etc., would have to be upheld. So it feels like we're into really awful, but really wild territory here. I mean, that combination of you just cannot actually imagine this happening, but it is on the verge of happening. At the end of these two days of testimony at ITLAS, it was up to Van Lo Casey to sum up the commission's arguments. He suggested to the tribunal that all the answers that COSIS are seeking are already available and stated in the globally recognized UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. The ALTLAS obligation is simple and unequivocal. States shall take all measures that are necessary to prevent, reduce and control pollution of the marine environment from any source. That's not mere aspiration. UNCLOS parties did not simply aim to take all measures that are necessary or commit themselves to make ambitious efforts to that end, to borrow phrases used in the Paris Agreement. There is a commitment in UNCLOS, an obligation to take all measures that are necessary to prevent, reduce and control pollution. This isn't a matter of digging out the small print in a contract that no one read properly before they signed it. UNCLOS was signed in 1982 after more than 10 years of work. Every line was drafted and studied and debated and often amended before it was finally adopted. States then took the text away to consider whether or not to ratify it. And it was 12 years later that it eventually entered into force in 1994. And since then, another 100 states have decided to ratify it. States knew what they were taking on, what commitments they were making. They knew that they were making an explicit and unequivocal commitment to take the measures necessary to prevent, reduce and control marine pollution. And he went on to say, Life is complicated and it involves difficult choices. We're all familiar with the propensity of governments to explain that their past promises cannot be fulfilled because of unforeseen developments or the need to balance competing demands or to pursue more urgent or important objectives. That is the nature of politics. But we are not politicians. The duty of the lawyer is to say honestly and plainly what the law is. The lawyer, the court, cannot physically compel people actually to do things in accordance with their legal obligations. 
but they can and must say what those legal obligations are. That is the service to the community that we are all engaged in, in these proceedings. So that's our wrap-up of some of the COSIS arguments, but the tribunal also received over 50 written submissions from states and organisations. And of course, there were some countries, including China and India, who challenged the tribunal's jurisdiction, but many states agreed that ITLOS should exercise its authority and issue an advisory opinion. Through the two-week hearing, the tribunal also heard those arguments from the 35 different states' parties. One of those was Sierra Leone, and their Deputy Minister of Justice, Alpha Cisse, addressed the tribunal, and he stressed the need for equitable solutions to the climate emergency. Here he is on day seven of the hearing. Though the climate emergency poses the greatest threat to our planet and to this generation, there is simply no equity when it comes to managing its effects. This tribunal's advisory opinion is an opportunity to change that. Sierra Leone, located on the west coast of Africa, is among the lowest contributors of greenhouse gas emissions in the world. Yet, my country is also among the 10% of countries that are most vulnerable to climate change. Sierra Leone hopes that the tribunal will use the opinion not just to clarify state parties' obligations under the convention, but also to help strengthen the foundation for equitable solutions to the climate emergency. We also spoke to Alpha Cisse after the hearing, and I began by asking him exactly why Sierra Leone, which isn't actually a small island state, but of course has got a coastline, why they went to ITLOS to make their case. And just a warning, the audio quality of this interview is not the best. He was in his office in Sierra Leone and the wireless connection was okay, but not great. We acknowledge the fact that the climate crisis is um, the most challenging crisis we face. It's one of the most challenging global crises we have at hand right now. We think, you know, as, as a country, as a government, in addition to taking steps to protect ourselves, can, we can be leaders, you know, in driving this narrative. We do acknowledge that for a country like Sierra Leone, we have limitations when it comes to you know, how much we can push on the global stage. But we still know that we have a role to play in determining the direction in which international law, as far as its response to the climate crisis goes. Whilst we do note that we have an important role in managing the climate crisis, we also do acknowledge that there is simply no equity in managing this crisis. So we really went to the tribunal because it is our hope that we will use this opinion not just to clarify state parties' obligations among the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, also to strengthen the foundation and broader discourse on equitable solutions to the climate emergency that the world faces. What about the actual effects of the climate crisis that you've already felt in Sierra Leone? I mean, the country was in the news, I think, a couple of years ago because of these huge uh, mudslides that you have. What are you already feeling from the climate crisis? Well, I mean, we do note that the negative effects of the climate crisis are being keenly felt in this country. Just a few years ago, there was a mudslide that claimed the lives of more than 1,000 people in the space of a few minutes. So when we talk about unpredictable weather patterns, you know, when we talk about flooding, when we talk about mudslides, you know, when we talk about impact on crop growth, 
um, Sierra Leone um, is really a victim, you know, in, in the real sense of the, the world. As a result of its position on the globe, it is exposed to a lot of things, a lot of negative effects on the climate crisis. Sierra Leone is exposed to, you know, the range from rising sea levels. And as I mentioned, you know, there's forced displacement of among people inhabiting among certain islands and low-lying coastal areas. You know, um, we also do note that crisis has had a negative effect on food security. You know, communities go hungry. So these are really many. And so we think that addressing this requires more than just what Sigalina as a country can do. It requires an equitable approach, you know, um, that brings in those who make greater contribution to the crisis itself to, you know, also make that contribution to addressing this crisis. You already alluded to it yourself, Sierra Leone can't do it alone. You're, it's quite a small state. The coalition bringing this matter to Idlis are all small states. Why band together and go to international tribunals? What can you achieve, do you think? Well, I mean, the whole point is that first, it's really noting that an international tribunal like that of the Law of Sea has an important role to play, especially you know when it comes to interpreting the provisions of the Convention on the Law of the Sea, so which Sigalini is a state party, you know, several other states across the world. And when we discuss among um, this particular issue in this context, we are talking about the contribution of that powerful states play, you know, the powerful corporations play to the climate crisis or the climate emergency, and then, you know, which affects countries like Sierra Leone. So we really think that international law can shape the manner in which among um, states approach the response to the climate emergency. And within the context, of the Convention on the Law of the Sea, it is just fitting to go to the tribunal, which really has the mandate to interpret the provisions of the convention itself. We do note that international law has evolved and in the context of this current crisis, it is important that we set that marker. And it is really great that a country like Sigalina, as small as we are, we are playing that crucial role, you know, and I'm not only in the context of international criminal law or international human rights, because it's news that Sigalina recently was elected to the UN Security Council in non-permanent category. It's important to know that, you know, we, we take these responsibilities very seriously and we see that we have a role to play in the international space as far as the climate emergency is concerned. Is the motivation that you have there specifically to try and change the balance of power in the world? As you say, you might have been a non-permanent member of the Security Council, but the, the power really lies with the P5, with the permanent members, and economic power in the world doesn't necessarily lie with your smaller state. So is the use of these tribunals a way of trying to, is it reshaping the narrative or is it trying to change the power dynamics? For us, it's about equity in managing this crisis. You know, it is really our view that if the big powers with the resources are the ones contributing the most to the crisis itself, then the smaller powers cannot be left with the burden to manage the crisis. It is just fear that there is equity in the approach. And that is why we believe that polluters must pay. You know, so we're part of that campaign. When the crisis comes from the big powers, then we have to use our meager resources to manage this crisis. Then that is actually using resources that could be spent to keep our kids in school. That is actually using resources that could be spent to put food on the table for our children. So this is about human lives, you know, and that is why we say that an equitable approach is what we need to addressing this crisis. And we are hoping 
that even without a ruling from the tribunal, the big powers who make the greater contribution will see a reason for an equitable approach to managing this crisis. So what are your expectations in terms of the decision? I mean, we know that ITLOS rulings themselves are not binding, but how would you assess the significance if they do rule in favour of the coalition's uh, arguments? Well, I mean, the whole point is that it will be, you know, if the tribunal rules, you know, in favour of the arguments that we have made, it will be a remarkable accomplishment. The tribunal has a real critical role as a principal interpreter and guardian of the convention itself. We believe that much as we will say that the decision of the tribunal is not binding, but it will be a strong statement in the context of international law. It will be a very strong statement in the context of the interpretation of the Convention on Law of the Sea. We believe that, you know, when states sign up to treaties, they do so with an intention to honor their obligations under treaty. And so we hope that that is how states will look at the, the decision of the tribunal. But just imagine the impact that that will have even at the domestic level. It actually means that with such an important interpretation by the tribunal, when big corporations operate in these environments, we are able to engage them in the context of not only domestic law, but also international law with obligation on parties to mitigate the, the, the climate crisis. So we think it will be a remarkable accomplishment to have a decision in favor of the argument that we have made. And definitely, we think it is something that we can build on just as we have done with decisions of other international tribunals. There's a lot of international law processes that are now focused on uh, Ukraine and Russia. It seems to kind of suck out the oxygen out of the room of any other uh, legal questions. And we have the Israel-Palestine conflict going on now. Do you think that international law focuses too much on conflicts and should focus more on these breather livability issues? Well, I mean, I, I really think that, um, you know, we can do both. There can be a focus on these issues that emerge and then take over the entire um, international law as well as media spaces, whilst also really focusing on these live everyday issues. You know, the point is that if we just focus on the reactionary processes, you know, when there's a crisis and forget about the lived experiences of people in various communities, such abandonment is what will lead to the bigger crisis. That's what will lead to conflict itself down the road. So um, we, we think it's not one or the other, you know, um, it's a situation we are in international law and the international community can actually respond to both because, you know, both are, are really important for the survival of humanity itself. So that's our summary of the hearings that uh, ITLOS had on climate change. Uh, a few thoughts. I was wondering whether kind of we're all setting this up for huge, amazing decisions, this one and the ICJ and the Inter-American Court. And I'm a bit worried that these judges might rule very narrowly and not provide the answers that everybody is looking for. What do you think, Steph? Yeah, I think we see that more in advisory opinions, the advisory opinions I've seen at least. At the time they come out, I always think they're very narrow. But then maybe later when I see them cited in, in bits and pieces, I see that maybe there's more to it than I could have grasped at the first instance. But I think we always have an expectation that they will rule very definitively. Kind of sweepingly. Sweepingly, yeah. 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 And, and that never really happens, at least in, in my experience. I'm also wondering, though, because we've got this whole new batch of judges that have just been elected. Um, we haven't been covering the election process itself, but... 
I think of note there, we've got Dire Tladi, who's been on the podcast, South African jurist who has joined the court. He was actually at ITLOS arguing uh, for Sierra Leone. Uh, he was part of the legal team there. So, you know, what does that say? Well, one of the things and uh, the arguments that Sierra Leone made is that this issue of climate change touches the global south countries seemingly sooner. So if we have more judges from the global south at the ICJ, maybe maybe they will rule slightly differently. Uh, and we are seeing kind of more diverse panel at the ICJ in the years that I've followed it. So maybe that will make a difference, but my experience with the ICJ is they tend to stick very close to the law. And uh, the other thing that might happen is we might get some very different rulings from different panels because they take into consideration different things. So you get a very different set of uh, ideas about what state's obligations are. I was just listening to uh, Dr. Yusris Suedi, she's from the University of Manchester, talking about how there might be a possible submission by NGOs to the African Court of People on Human Rights on Climate Change. So again, yet another fora that, uh, that might be making some kind of a decision. You just can't predict what they're all going to say. Yeah, and then even if they have made this decision, you know, of course, ITLOS and the ICJ are advisory opinions, then how does that actually get used in possible legislation to force states to do anything? Because again, as we said at the top of the podcast, the tribunal has no way of enforcing its decisions. And so at some point, we're going to hope for enough of a consensus in the a legal ruling that uh, local courts start taking over this. I mean, it's it's hard to see at this point where it will lead, but it could also be one of those things where in 30, 40 years, we'll look back on it and say that this was really groundbreaking and it put all these things, all this change in motion. But that's really, really hard to see from the ground at the time, I think. Well, the tribunal is now deliberating. Uh, the judges are behind the scenes discussing it and they're expected to issue their opinion around March of next year. So we'll have a podcast planned on that, on the results. And um, I think particularly ask that question how these results might be picked up by other courts. Yes, so stay tuned for that. And a quick reminder that you are also welcome to support us on Patreon and get our extra podcast, The War Criminals Book Club. You are a member. And if you are otherwise happy to support us but don't want to be a Patreon member, there is always the tip jar on the support us page of our website. Thank you very much. Thanks. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net, an independent site covering justice effort for mass violence. Music is by audionautics.com, and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word. <laughs>